Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Andrew. Uh, so excited to have you on the show. You're a founder, you're a speaker, and you're a podcast host in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, who is inspiring and motivating so many folks out there. So excited to have you share your journey with everyone. So for those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about yourself? Of course, of course. First off, thanks so much, Jeremy. I appreciate uh, us connecting here. Andrew Senduk, a former banker turned serial entrepreneur. I love building companies, love building people. Over the last couple of years, I've built uh, several tech companies, e-commerce companies within the region. And uh, uh, specifically in the last four years, I've been, I became like a professional keynote speaker and wrote a book in 2018. And as of today, I still work a lot with entrepreneurs, founders on growth. So I help them scale businesses from A to B. And uh, I love doing that. How did you first catch the bug to say, what, forget this consulting and banking career, I want to be a founder? Yeah, it's, it's funny enough. It was like in uh, 2009. 2009, I was uh, back then working at the dealing room at, uh, at ING in Amsterdam. And honestly speaking, it was uh, kind of like my dream job. I always wanted to be in this fast-paced environment, doing big deals. You know, I was, uh, I was a young guy, quote-unquote young guy. I'm still a young guy, actually. But, but um I don't know. I felt like I was in a cage, the the the, the famous golden cage, and uh, I was playing a lot with the idea of you know what I need. I want to start a business. So I tried to do, like some side hustles, but for me personally, it was kind of difficult to juggle like a pretty high pressure job with a side business. So I came to this point where I said to my wife, "I want to resign from my job." And to give you a bit of context, like both my, me and my wife are entrepreneurs. And back then, we we just bought a house with a mortgage and yeah, pretty big stuff, like grown up stuff. Then we, eventually we decided like uh, it's it's enough it's, enough is enough. Uh, let's give it a try. Let's give it a year, right? So we we plant this just budget wise. We plant this one year. If there's no income, we still survive. And in the same week, we both resigned from our jobs and uh, started entrepreneuring from the living room. That's uh, kind of like where it started. So since 2009, I've been building stuff, building companies. Awesome. And what was that first thing that you built? Yeah, so the first thing was actually uh, as an e-commerce company as well. It was a one-product shop, pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, in Indonesia, there's this famous pillow, which is called the guling. I always tell this story, uh, especially when I, when I speak. Uh, uh, but uh, it, the guling is like a long sausage-shaped pillow. I don't know if they have it in Singapore, but in Indonesia, it's kind of like part of culture. Every time when I came to Indonesia, you know, for holiday or for, for meeting my family, I, I was like, oh man, I... I this pillow is amazing, right? To sleep in such a with such a pillow is amazing. But they didn't have it in the Netherlands. They only had like similar type of pillows, but mostly focused on pregnant women. So my idea was really to make this uh, one product, make this pillow into a cool product, like a United Colors of Benetton type of uh, photo shoot and that type of branding. I'm like, you know, let's uh, let's go to China, find a supplier there who could make it. If you buy a guling in Indonesia, it's going to cost you like, uh, I don't know, $8 maybe, $7. I sold it in the Netherlands for $70. And uh, I did a photo shoot with some friends from all colors, all nationalities, Chinese girl, black guy, white girl, green girl, red girl, whatever, all types of colors. And uh, in the first 24 hours after I launched, I, I sold like 600 of them. And I was in the living room, man. I was just in my living room, launched this website. 
And that's when I kind of like caught the bug, like, oh man, this is pretty amazing. I'm in my living room right now in my nice environment. I'm selling to nationwide. Eventually I started selling also in other countries, but, but back then I sold like throughout the nation. That's where I really fell in love with the power of e-commerce and you know, selling stuff online. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where it started. Obviously, it's a good blend because of your experiences with marketing, with obviously the big macro tailwinds of growing e-commerce spend in the region, and obviously you understand the local culture and buying dynamics. What's interesting, of course, is that you scale this out, right? Because you're just building out one product, but you start building this out in a more venture scaled format as mm. well. Mm. Because mm-hmm. you didn't decide to make this like an e-commerce dropshipper, right? Format as well. Yeah. So talk us more about how you scaled out this from one product to more of a business. Yeah. So so in the Netherlands, I was pretty uh, pretty big in like niche commerce, so really like one product shops. So uh, you know, after I did the the pillow, I started to doing a bit more B two B, selling to hotels and stuff like that. But it was still kind of like in this one product store. But after that, I, I launched like several niche niche websites, uh, also in like superfoods, and we did a bit of fashion as well. But I think the the real scaling part, to be very honest, my really scaling experience was really in Indonesia, where I I really was exposed to this this idea of hyper growth and what growth actually means and taking it to the next level, what it really means. And that was my my experience with uh, you know back then uh, launching Moxie which was a female-focused e-commerce company, initially started in Thailand, and I, I launched the, the one in Indonesia, which we really grew from zero in Indonesia. And you know, through different M&As, we eventually rebranded to Arami, and then we took it to the next level where we employed over 600 people in Indonesia. And um, yeah, that was kind of like pretty much skill that I've never seen or experienced before. So that was pretty new, for me, new to me as well, right? Yeah, so talk us more about what was it like to uh, co-found at that time, Moxie, and what was you thinking at that point of time? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be very honest, like I moved to Indonesia in 2013, and um, I thought like, oh, I have this entrepreneurial experience from the Netherlands, and like I, I know how everything goes. So I came to Jakarta. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start this new company from scratch without you know knowing the right people. So a bit of too much confidence there. I felt like, oh, it's it's pretty pretty difficult in that sense. And I'm still a bule, right? I'm still a, a white guy in that sense. You know, coming to Indonesia, no, no, don't have any network. I did a stint with a digital agency back then, which was part of Line and Lion, all ex-Rocket guys, funded by Nova founders, which gave me actually our, my initial exposure to to growth because this agency grew to five six countries within twelve months. It showed me kind of like the potential, the demand there was and there still is on, on that agency side. And along that journey of the digital agency, I was approached by a Nova founder or by, by Arden Capital, which was another VC and Thai VC, who then had the idea like, hey, we want to launch this, uh, this e-commerce company. But to be very honest, in 2013, when I just moved, I had this idea already like, oh man, when I moved to Indonesia, such a massive market, I'm going to build this multi-million dollar business. Even though I didn't know the people, I didn't know anything about the local market actually. But I just came in with this idea like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So through those, a bit of a detour, digital agency, I came back to my, where my heart is really full of and it's e-commerce. We rented a small office in, uh, in Jakarta, in Kuningan City, or Kuningan area. Like literally, I think 20 square meters. And uh, yeah, just uh, ninja style, you know, like going into LinkedIn and hijacking people. And that's what, that's what, I, what, I, what I mentioned like pre-interview. I think, uh, you know, when you don't have anything, when there's nothing you have to show, there's no cool office, there's nothing, there's no big brand. But then getting people inside, getting people on board on your rocket ship, I think that's the, one of the most exciting things, like really being able to convince people like, okay, yeah, what, what you're going to build is going to change. It's going to be 
something is going to it's going to be worth something within the whole tech ecosystem of Indonesia. And then you know, from the first person I hired, then the second, and then suddenly we were at ten, and suddenly we we're like fifty. And, and the funny thing was, I, I had like fifty people, but uh, we didn't launch yet. You know what I mean? So that, so it was like very fast. Like within a few months, that we had like sixty people, and then uh, so we launched. And you know how it is. Uh, eventually, when you have investors, like the the pressure is also on, right? It's not like oh, we launch, we're gonna look, uh, we take our time to go for product market fit. Now it's like we launch and we go boom, 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 GMV, GMV, GMV. While I'm in that roller coaster, to be honest, like looking back, it's it was so exciting, man. It was so exciting because again, for me, even coming from the corporate side, you know, I worked at Deloitte, I worked at ING, like corporate corporations. The teams I led there were like max five people or like four or five people, right? So it's a different type of leadership, but suddenly there's like so many people you need to guide. And a lot of the people in the team were maybe first-time e-com people, first-time digital people. So, so I took them from corporations. Some of them I also took from other e-commerce companies. But so many things to learn. I think as a, as a leader in general, so many things to learn from a, a vision perspective. But but I think most mostly from a leadership perspective. But leadership is all about communicating. It's all about like sharing stories so that people believe in you, right? And these people could be other investors. The people could be new employees that you have. So, um, yeah, a lot, and that's why I, I, I believe like this this ecosystem right now, with so many young leaders, it can be overwhelming like, to build something to have the pressure on one side of of like investors, or even maybe yourself because you just want to scale as fast as possible. But it can be overwhelming, and that's why like structuring your thoughts and like having good guidance in that is I think crucial. If it's not for for the business, then it's for your own mental health, you know, to to kind of like be systematic, be systematic with with what scaling means and how to do it. So lots of different things that you mentioned in terms of this thing, from the rocket ship and taking notes here to you know obviously it being GMV, GMV, GMV mm. to it being overwhelming. Let's talk about that early days first, which is, can you tell us more about what was it like trying to get people to sign up? On board, yeah. When you know you're talking about the rocket ship story, yeah. you know yeah. when there's no rocket ship, yeah, you, when it's know. just the two of you. Yeah. So there's yeah. a little bit of a chicken and egg, right? Well, but of course. Also, you're of not course. being authentic, but then you're not being real. So how yeah. does that work? You know, everyone kind of struggles with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. And that's why I always believe like entrepreneurs are visionaries, and entrepreneurs are like they, they can sell the dream, right? And literally, I was I was looking at some old messages that I that I sent to a few people that eventually joined my team. I'm, I'm also honest, right? I'm also honest. Like, okay, you know, uh, I'm the only one right now and we need people now. We need to strengthen the core team. So we need like heavy people, people that are inspired enough, passionate enough to like make a dent in Indonesia's tech industry. And they want to be part of that story. And you need to understand that back then, I think Lipo Mall, they were just launching their e-commerce, you know, with a lot of like a big war chest. So you need to differentiate yourself from... Just because I can, I also couldn't afford paying people like big, super big salaries, right? Of course, I asked them, you know, what's your current salary? And of course, I added a bit on top of that, but it's, I couldn't really play that card. So then what card do you play? What card do you play? You play this abstract card, that feeling, the feeling of telling a story and then convincing people to come on board to be part of that story. That's right. I think communicating and telling stories, I think so, so crucial for entrepreneurs in general, even if it's you're leading your team on a day-to-day basis or if it's like telling the story to investors to keep backing you, to keep funding more. I think storytelling is so crucial. Yeah, uh, those emails were, I mean, literally were like, you know, hey, I'm Andrew, I'm going to launch this e-commerce company and I'm looking for strong people that want to be part of this journey and uh, let's, let's have a coffee, right? Pretty, uh, pretty straightforward stuff. Yeah, along the way, people bought into that story. 
And then you build the team, you build the culture, right? And then once we had the culture, then suddenly it's like, oh, like my employees are suddenly like hiring other people because they want to be part of the family. And I think that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this whole startup type of culture when the team is still small, it's like 50, 60 people, it's still like a big family to really protect that. I think that's, that's where the challenge is. Because to keep the same culture, the same communication levels for a 50 or 60 people team versus a 600 plus or 1,000 people team, I think that's, that requires a lot of intention. That requires a whole different team, right? Which is focused on HR and, and culture and people. But as a hands-on CEO, I really, really enjoyed that season where you know, we went from me alone to you know, 60, 70 people. That's such an uh, exciting time because you, you also build a lot of relationships with, with everyone. You know, everyone becomes part of, of the family that you're building. So uh, yeah, that's always exciting about building. Well, obviously, there's a huge pathway is there, right? But I think there's a challenge here, which is you said that you send a text and you're being honest about the upside. And it's also a struggle for a lot of founders to say, like, how do you be exciting about the future mm. while also getting them on board? Yeah, is yeah. there any advice in retrospect? Because sometimes it feels like obvious in retrospect and sometimes it doesn't feel so obvious. Any advice quickly you have on getting people on board that rocket ship? Yeah. yeah, well, well, I think at the end of the day, it's really about um, about being yourself, which kind of sounds corny, maybe. But I think when you're really close to to who you are, and you are actually convinced, like two hundred percent convinced, that this idea that you're building is going to change lives, that enthusiasm, that passion should come across. You know, so it's not really about like oh, I'm like an imposter syndrome type of thing. I think it's really about you know if you are really passionate about something and about solving a problem. I personally think that, that it would be very easy to get people on board. And, and even there, also, it's product market fit, right? Even there, it's product market fit. Like, where, where are you going to fish for new people, right? You should, the referrals are always good, right? Which are a bit more low-hanging fruit, so there's a bit of uh, filters there. But everything in life, a product market fit is applicable. You know, the first hires I did were, like, maybe introductions from friends within the industry or, or went through VC, right? Or just other networks. So it's not too like, oh, Andrew's coming out of nowhere, which I also did. I mean, I also did like the Ninja Style on LinkedIn, which I also did. And I hired a lot of people on LinkedIn. But I think the, the, the first ones, it would be, yeah, it w- ideally speaking, it would be nice if these are like some type of introductions. So there is some filter. But, but again, like coming back to your question, I believe like once, if you're really convinced that what you're doing is going to change the world, or make life easier for a certain group of people for your specific ICA, your ideal customer avatar, then that enthusiasm should just be natural, right? And, and when you tell that story, you will pull people in. But going more into detail of that, yeah, that, that, then it comes to like communication strategies. It comes really about trust. And trust is a topic which, which is applicable to, to startups and investors, but also from startups to their future employees. How you build that trust? How you build that trust? So yeah, there's all different strategies for. Yeah, I think when you're really intentional about, about the idea that you have, intentional about the people that you talk to, that there's, that there's a potential good match, or at least there's some match there, then I think it will be pretty easy actually to, to get them on board. And there you are, obviously you bring them on board and you've won these hires. You said, you know, you're hammering GMV, you know, trying to grow aggressively. What are some aspects, you mentioned that you started to understand some parts about growth that you didn't understand before, right? So could you share a little bit more about what you meant by that? Growth is, is a beautiful thing, right? Because uh, growth is uh, it's easy to look at growth from a superficial perspective, from a superficial angle. It's easy to look at growth. Growth 
as in number of people that you have, growth as in GMV, growth as in just your overall revenue, whatever startup that you're doing. But along the way, I've been really starting to see that apart from like the, the pressures of investors, but you as an entrepreneur, when you're building something, you need to really make a difference between, let's say, the vanity metrics, which could be sometimes superficial, and the quality metrics. So really about, let's say, employee engagement, like just purely the happiness level of your people. How is communication going within the teams? What culture are you building? I think those things you don't see on a headline. There's not a lot of exposure on those type of things, right? But I think it's crucial for the foundation of growth. And when you come more to the financials, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's always going to be this, this um, tension between, let's say, top line versus your bottom line and, and everything in between. So I think it's just a, bit, just a bit of a balance that you need to really focus on. If I look back, like we were pretty focused like on top line, right? Top line GMV. And we're talking about 2014, 15, right? 16. So maybe back then it was still uh, allowed. It was still allowed. But, but I think just in hindsight, I would really say that balance those two. So at least that you have a really good benchmark between the vanity ones, which could make the headlines, but then also the metrics that maybe don't make the, don't make the news, but are crucial for the foundation of your organization, for the foundation of your leadership, because those quality metrics will actually help you really grow to the next stage, right? That's amazing because it sounds like something that you learned in retrospect. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, for like. sure. For so sure. tell us more about two things. First of all, give us an example of a vanity metric versus a more like fundamental metric from your perspective. Yeah. For me, the, the most obvious one is really like just your top line GMV, right? Just purely your, your top line sales, your gross revenue that you're doing, which of course is going to be maybe one of the first things that uh, investors could be asking or media could be asking or, or even you hold for yourself like, because we need to grow this business. And then yeah, just from an e-commerce perspective, I think yeah, margins, of course, is, is kind of like what, was, what actually is the quality. Going a bit deeper, it's more on retention customers, like how many of the new, just your whole balance between your new customers versus your retention. And, and go maybe a level deeper is more on marketing efficiency. You know, if we talk about eventually we're spending, what, 500000 or a million dollars a month in, in, in ads, going into like micro detail of, uh, I don't know, of your return on ad spend, for example, your ROAS on certain campaigns versus your margins, for example, right? Because oftentimes when you're running behind GMV, it can get really, really like a rat race. You're just, then you're starting, you're starting to sell things purely to bump up your average order of value or your, your basket size. But actually in the back of your mind, you know that it's not part of the core of the business, but you're doing it to show the numbers. <laughs> so that's, that's really a tension. And, and, you know, like I mentioned, I think once investors are on board, I think that's really important that, that, that you have the right, even on that side, you know, the startup and the investor, that there's the right product market fit as well. So that the investors also know and have a, have a, have a realistic timeline on when certain growth is being achieved. And they're not like be, with a whip behind you, like, you know, you need to keep on going, keep on going. So there's, yeah, I think there should always be a balance between the two. But yeah, I think those two metrics, we talk like top line GMV or gross sales, Versus, versus your margins, as I think that's a very big balance that entrepreneurs and leaders need to, need to look into. The second aspect of that is 
there's actually the learning aspect of that, which is you said that this is something that you came to realize, right, yeah. over time. Yeah. So what, what made it difficult for you to understand at a time versus something that has taken time for you to decompress and yeah. learn that over time? Yeah. So is it, maybe is, it, is it maybe like all founders are smarter now in 2021 now that, I mean, that, which is kind of true, right? I think founders are generally smarter with more internet. I think so. I think it's an aspect of it personally. But I, I mean, I'm just kind of wondering what do you think has been part of that journey for you? Yeah, um, well, I think on that rocket ship and, and again, with the, the, the variable of investors being involved and the variable of, of pressure, the variable of needing to deliver, of course, we're running, right? We're running. And I think that is just something which once investors are on board, it is, of course, a bit of a different agenda, that everyone has, you know, different pressure, different timelines, you know, because people want to have returns, which is legit that if investors put money in you, they want to see returns. But I think in hindsight, it's more on um, you know, if that pressure would not be there, maybe you should spend more time on, on focusing on that product market fit. So the quality of your business and the quality of your metrics would be different and would be more long-term driven. That's kind of like in, in hindsight, uh, yeah, I think maybe it's because of internet as well. I think, I think with entrepreneurs and in leadership in general, I believe that your capacity to zoom in and to zoom out is crucial for every business, but it's also crucial for your life. And if you're so zoomed in into that business and every day you look at the P&L and every day you look at your you know, ERP system and you look at how many, how many stock you have or how many sales you're doing, sometimes it's difficult to like zoom out and to really understand like, what actually are we doing, right? What are we chasing? Are we chasing the GMV or are we actually chasing a product market fit, which on a longer term would give us much more quality? And even up until today, you know, I, I, I work with, with, with entrepreneurs and some are doing pretty solid numbers, right? It could be like you know, 20, 30, $40 million in revenue. I still have that discussion, which I find interesting. Because you, from the outside, would say like, oh, these guys are doing really well. Like, you know, look at their, look at their sales or look at the team. But when you drill down, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a moving thing, right? It's almost like a, a live Google Docs, right? Which, which needs to be adjusted sometimes. And in and, and this product market fit, ideal situation is I have it from the beginning, I launch quality. But the reality is it's not always like that. And so I think that revisiting the product market fit and really understanding this quality of, of revenue that's coming in, the quality of clients that are coming in, that eventually is going to give you uh, the good foundation for growth. But when you're in it and when there's more agendas behind the company that you're building, it's not always that easy to say like, oh, you know what, guys, just give me like a year time to get the right product market fit. Once that's, that's ready, then we're going to accelerate. No, that's, that's just not the reality. Because the moment when, when people come on board and well, you know and I know, yeah, it's going to be a bit different, right? There's, there's more people behind the wheel or at least more people are kind of like pushing the car. And that is sometimes challenging. So, so that's why I... In hindsight, looking back, I, I just think it's really important for entrepreneurs and startup founders to really, when we talk about VC funding, for example, to have the right people in your board, <laughs> to have the right people in your team that are there for you, for the company, and not only to write a check and you know, wait a couple of years to get the, to get the nice, uh, nice exit there, right? Which is difficult, by the way. <laughs> It is difficult. Yeah, it is difficult, yeah. And especially in, especially in e-commerce, because back then, again, 2015, 16, a lot of burning. When you're burning, it's not really nice to fundraise when you're burning. That's why I, I always say, like, you know, just build a business where you don't have to raise, so that when you raise, you're in the best shape to raise. Because if you don't need money, 
you want in or not, man. It's it's not it's not it's gonna be your win. Uh, I'll I'll win anyway because I don't, I don't need your money. So I'm just giving you the opportunity to to chip along. So that mindset shift is, I think, very important. That um, that that founders build down businesses that are just profitable and just try to make it profitable from the beginning, make money, understand the business model, and then if you think like, okay, I need money to scale faster to get the marketing engine running faster, okay, that that would make sense. But um, yeah, but I think just back then, six seven years ago. Yeah, it was just a bit different. Different agendas, different forces that are playing a role. That's not always easy, but uh, yeah, you need to balance balance different agendas. Yeah, I think there's a, actually a good set of learnings there, right? And to quickly tie that in, I especially agree with what you said, which is, hey, you know, if you define the metric as GMV or vanity metric versus you know deeper metrics, you set the, yourself astray, you set a team astray, but then you also start bringing on the wrong teammate like the wrong investors. Yeah. And then they are your boss, your teammate, the wrong structure, the wrong time pressure. And then, then you're stuck. And then you're like pushing each other on the wrong you know, timetable, the wrong incentives. And then the flywheel goes sideways, right? Um, yeah. That is challenging. And again, it's not always that easy, right? To really orchestrate that in the right way. It needs a lot of intention. That's why, like from the get-go, if you can already build in a profitable way, it's gonna make the whole negotiation different, where you are actually have the power to decide, you know, what's important, yes or no. The moment that that's not the case, yeah, it becomes very difficult to to demand things. It becomes difficult to drive things. That's just the reality, which kind of makes sense as well, right? Because if they put money in you, then yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're having all of these learnings and you're building and. You know, you say, okay, you know, you build out Orami. What was that learning as you scale out as the company scales to the next level? How did you feel like the company shift and change? Yeah, I think for me, it's really on the people side. I think that's the, the biggest learning for me is really like people because at a certain moment, like, like I said, I think the journey from, let's say, up until 60 people is really family-ish, family-like. But then once we grow further and eventually we had like 600 people, it's, uh, it's, it's a different beast, right? It's a different, different ball game. It requires much more structure in, in how teams are uh, operated on reporting. And I think that's one of, the, one of the big lessons for me. I mean, apart from, you know, talking about vision or apart from where, where we as a company are evolving into, I think the people side is, I think, definitely one of the biggest learnings where just adding people is, is, is never the solution, right? <laughs> just adding people is never the solution. And, and sometimes in developing countries, it is actually the most, the easiest solution. I got, I got like a, I don't know. Uh, my my sink is leaking. I'll just I'll just hire someone to hold like something beneath it. You know, instead of just fixing the sink. That sounds really weird. If you go deep into some companies, then actually actually that is the philosophy. So I think that has been a big learning where you know it, hiring people is never the solution. Firing people is sometimes the solution. But always thinking in automation. That's why nowadays I'm so much into like automation. How can we build businesses without any hands being involved in the process, or at least minimum number of hands? But just again, like looking back in hindsight, I think it would be good if that paradigm of hiring people shifted towards hiring very slow, but then firing fast, which sounds pretty aggressive. But I think there is a fundamental theme, which is really that the people that you hire should be really adding value, like really adding value. And then uh, once you have those people on board, then it's really about think thoroughly on, on structure, on team structure, on organization, on reporting lines, on the dotted lines, 
on, you know, I don't know, working in sprints, just the way people work and the way they're productive. I think that becomes a big issue or that becomes a big challenge when there's so many people on the, on the payroll, right? And, and again, even, even now when I, when I work with founders and entrepreneurs, maybe they have like 50 people or 100 people, I always hammer on this. Because yeah, we just hire we just hire a few people for that. No, like like really, do you need to hire people for that? Maybe you should fire some people for that, and maybe one person should be doing that. I had this interesting discussion with one of my guests, and he's like, you know, you could hire ten developers, but maybe there's a ten x developer out there as well. So that process has been a very big learning. You know, Indonesia is such a huge country. There's so many young people. There's so much potential, but just hire the right person, groom them properly. And then uh, you'll be much better off than just uh, you know just hiring uh, hiring ten guys and, uh, and kind of uh, keep going right. So so just be much more intentional with people, how you organize it, how you build them, how you structure it, and that would definitely be a big factor in in the next stage of the business. Amazing, Andrew. I'd love to hear from you. Could you tell us about time that you have been brave? Well, so to me, honestly, uh, the time that I've been brave was really the when I when I resigned from my job. You need to understand, like uh, back then we were uh, dinkies, right? Like uh, double income, no kids. Uh, we lived uh, in a beautiful apartment in the city of Amsterdam. And life was really good, man. Like uh, life was really good. I had a dream job actually, you know, making good banking money. And my wife was a chief designer at a clothing brand. But, you know, sometimes uh, I just feel that we, we plan our lives as much as we can. And, and we plan like long term and we should plan long term. But at the same time, I'm also a guy that would say like, you know, life could also be over, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people, uh, they walk on the street and a bus hits them. Uh, they didn't think that that would happen that day. So sometimes I'm really, I also need to find a balance in that, but, but I sometimes really like, uh, I listen to my feelings. And, and back then, even though life was very comfortable, I was like, I just need to do this. I mean, it's pretty tough, man. I mean, you just signed a mortgage, you know, uh, and both of us would resign that week. So it was pretty, I would say, a pretty brave moment uh, for us. And it was actually a catalyst for our career as well because both me and my wife have been entrepreneurs since uh, 2009. But that's definitely a pivotal moment. That's definitely a moment in my life that I would say that I, that I was brave. Yeah, that moment is also the reason why I am now here where I am, right? With a lot of highs and lows as well. But, you know, that's uh, how life is. What made you make that leap? That leap... Uh, Maybe one of the reasons as well was like a good friend of mine was an internet entrepreneur and we studied together. And of course, I admired him, right? A super inspiring guy. And uh, he, uh, he exited this business when he was 27, 28, sold the business for like 20 million. And I've always had this entrepreneurial itch. Even when I was working uh, at Deloitte, for example, like my early days of my career, I was like side hustling with like a few other guys to start an app. So I was always intrigued by entrepreneurship and building something. But I just didn't have like either the time or the de de uh, dedication or just the priority in my schedule. It just wasn't there. Then I said to myself, you know what? It's now or never. That type of thing. Like it's now or never. Like if you if you should try it, just try it now. And I didn't do it as an impulse. I literally said like, okay, our mortgage mortgage back then was like fifteen hundred US a month. And I said like, okay, you know what? Uh, let's uh, at least if we have like twelve times our mortgage, uh, a bit of money for groceries. I'll tell you, like back then, a dinky lifestyle, we're like, uh, we're balling it every day, like restaurants, whining and dining everywhere. And then I, we both quit our jobs, man, like uh, no income, no income, um, like literally from one month, nice income, second month, like like, like zero coming in. <laughs> it's the first month, it's nice, right? We're like still in this, uh, this like kind of holiday mood. But then uh, the reality step, steps in, right? Like if you don't do something, 
no one is going to do something. If you don't do something, nothing is going to move. And I think that that paradigm is, I think, for entrepreneurs, I think that the foundation, like if you don't push it, if you don't come with something, nothing is going to happen. Yeah, so eventually, you know, we just jumped ship because because we just saw that the world is so big. And my world back then was only the dealing room with ING and was just trading derivatives, which look at my Bloomberg screen, which kind of like sounds nice or looks nice from the outside. But at the end of the day, it's super niche, very specialist, specialist job. And I'm like, I want to look out. I don't look in, look in the world, you know, what can, I, what can I do? And I really felt that my creative spirit was not really unleashed in that dealing room. So then I'm like, let's just go, let's just go. We got the money to be safe for one year and then let's just go. And I have to say, like, from whining and dining to having no income, man, we went to, like, the markets and uh, we always bought the stuff, like, all, all at, uh, at the bottom of the floor, right? And we went to markets and, yeah, uh, you need to adjust your spending pattern, man. You need to adjust your spending pattern, especially as, like, starting entrepreneurs, which was an amazing time, by the way, especially to do that with your wife as well. I mean, for me, uh, yeah, it's, it's special, man. To me, it's special. And I've been working with my wife for the last uh, 12 plus years. So it's been, it's been good times, man. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your journey so far. Very welcome. I'd love to take the time to paraphrase and summarize the three big themes that I got from this discussion. The first is uh, thank you so much for sharing about your advice on really how to win people over and hires in terms of the early days about a culture, in terms of being a founder, especially in terms of articulating it when you have nobody except for yourself and your co-founder, to articulating the vision of a rocket ship, to actually bringing people on board and actually winning them over, over and over again, while also being honest about where you are versus the competitors and the reality of the market. And I think along the way, you also talked about some of the culture and people dynamics of uh, being a founder and leader of a scaling company as well. The second part that we also got to talk about was really about vanity metrics and incentives. So we actually got to talk about a little bit about how uh, we are often chasing metrics like GMV or other metrics that are very not really the core of what the business is. For example, like margin or efficiency and effectiveness, like return on ad spend and things like that. And so therefore, it causes our team and the founders to prioritize initiatives that like order size value or things like that are not really the core of what needs to be done. And therefore, it causes uh, us to search for the wrong or choose the wrong VCs, the wrong capital strategy, and then things go sideways. But I think we also got a chance to very quickly outline what the perfect world looks like, which is that we are focusing on the right core metrics. And therefore, we choose the right core team, the right core incentives, the right core business. And therefore, we're in a good capital and revenue situation and therefore we're in a good negotiating position to pick the best VCs and then everything's a nice flywheel from there as well. So I think this is a good reminder for all the next generation of founders to remember for the next stage. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about what I call the entrepreneurial family itch, I guess, about how both you and your wife had that itch to really uh, build something for both of yourselves and explore new geographies, new roles, new industries, and really uh, move from a double income, no kids situation to zero income, no kids to now, uh, uh, I guess, back to double income and with kids, uh, <laughs> you know, situations, double income, double kid, uh, DIGK. And it's just amazing to see that switch. It's just an inspiring story for people uh, looking to make that jump across uh, so many different areas. So thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up 
at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.